Well, it is so good uh, to be back with you. Uh, we worshiped online with you uh, last week. Uh, over the last couple weeks, we've had COVID and quarantine go through our house, and that's why we weren't able to be here. Uh, I'm really glad that we have a, a church like the Creek down in Greenwood that sees its staff not just as belonging to them, uh, but as a kingdom asset, and they're willing to let them come and share with us and I was just challenged and encouraged by Tom Harrigan. Uh, he, he, he came and he changed up his schedule and modified things to be here to, to cover for me. And his message was, was rich, uh, looking at the importance of our soul's connection to God. And I, I really appreciate how when he was speaking about the importance of our soul being connected and how to foster that connection, he, he linked it back to spiritual disciplines. He and I had talked on the phone and I kind of told him where we'd been and, and where we're going and, and, and how we tied that in to show that our spiritual disciplines, our intentional um, practice of these things we see in scripture that cultivate the character of Christ can actually foster uh, that connection for us and help our soul be connected. Um, we are about done with spiritual disciplines uh, as an emphasis at Lebanon Christian Church. We, we've not mined all the depths of spiritual disciplines. Uh, we have just kind of scratched the surface a little bit in, in looking at the ones we have, but I think they've given us a, a start. In fact, we're beginning today a final little mini-series on a collection of spiritual disciplines that relate to the Word of God. But, but, but all along the way, I've felt this burden to make sure that as we talk about spiritual disciplines... When we launch a new mini-series on some new disciplines that we, we really understand why we're looking at these, where we've been, and how they tie into our life as followers of Jesus for a couple of reasons. One of them is that if we look at intentional practices and habits that we cultivate in our life, things like hospitality and service and prayer and fasting and submission and Sabbath rest and, and now things related to the Word of God, it is really easy in a culture that prizes work and the rewards of work, to think that the habits or the disciplines in and of themselves are the objective. And we, become, we can become people who emphasize doing things to get more from God, and that's not what we're articulating. We're saying because of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus and the life that he has planned for us, the purposes that he has for us, here's how we can respond to his grace. Here's how we can respond to his love and, and live the kind of life he calls us to that's actually in our best interest and in the way he, he, he made us and intended us to live from the very beginning. So kind of from that macro level, that big picture, uh, we're emphasizing spiritual disciplines this year because of a decision that our leadership made a little bit over two years ago. Um, we, we, we saw that we needed to be better at prioritizing uh, the, the mission of, of God. Jesus tells us that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, that we are to be disciples who are trusting and following Jesus, and we are helping others learn to trust and follow Jesus. Well, a disciple is someone who does trust and follow Jesus. They look to him. He's their example. They want to follow him. And so we said, if we're going to baseline here, uh, how do we do that? And so we spent 2020 looking at the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because the Gospel of Luke is an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. And, and why Luke's Gospel, instead of Matthew, Mark's, or John's, uh, they're all great. But Luke says, I give an orderly account to you to remind you why you believe the things you believe. And so we spent a year just looking at Jesus who he was, the claims he made, and what he did. If we're gonna be a disciple of Jesus, we have to know who he is. But ultimately, anytime we get to know who Jesus is, we know that that demands a response from us. 
Jesus doesn't really give the the latitude or the space or the margin to think of him just as a good man or or a really nice guy. Because of the claims that Jesus made about himself, I mean, he himself said that he was the son of God. He himself said that he came to seek and save the lost. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, that demands a response. Will I accept him? Will I respond to him? Or will I reject him? And so we've looked this year in 2021 at what that response to Jesus looks like if he is, in fact, who he says he is. If he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, what, does that, what does that mean for me? And so for the first five months of the year, we looked at submitting to the kingship of, of Jesus. And then these last several months, we've looked at how do we foster that connection with God to allow his heart and, and his life to be manifest in us. And spiritual disciplines are one way that we do that. We're ending here with this emphasis on the word of God. And instead of looking at a specific discipline each week, we're gonna look at a collection of disciplines that, that form around the word of God. Um, but before we get into some of those, I, I wanna start by just helping you understand that as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we believe something very bold about the word of God. Even in that name, it expresses the bold claim. We believe that this collection of 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books, letters, gospels, travel logs like the book of Acts, an apocalyptic letter like Revelation, we believe that they are in fact the words of God. That's a bold claim. Like they're, they're not just a great advice journal. It's not just a, a, a nice little diary about some things you might want to grab hold of. It's not chicken soup for the soul. Like, like this is the word of God. These are our creator, the all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent, one and only God of the universe has communicated a message to us. And, and, and that is a bold claim. In fact, we've been looking to these very words that teach us about spiritual disciplines. At Lebanon Christian Church, we believe wholeheartedly that we need to be a church that is rooted. It's one of our core values, rooted in the word of God and prayer. Why? Because as we root ourselves in the truth of God's word, what he says about us as humankind, what he says about himself, what he says about how we live, that keeps us and that holds us. When you look at the trees that survive the storms, they're ones with deep roots that anchor them in the soil. And we believe that if we hold fast to the words of God, the words of scripture inspired and transmitted across generations, that they will hold us as the storms come. And let's just be honest, in every generation there are storms. The storms may vary in their type, they may vary in their intensity, but they come. And we believe the word of God, the message of God will act as an anchor for us when so many things compel us to live in a different way. It is an anchor for us. It is, is it, there are roots for us. In fact, we believe what the word of God declares about itself. If you look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul, in writing Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus, just makes a very bold declaration about the scriptures. And at Lebanon Christian Church, we hold on to this. And this is kind of the traditional view of the scriptures that held up for the first basically 1,800 years of the church until the Enlightenment when people started questioning things, which, by the way, is just a little while ago. It's not like uh, it it was how, how people felt for a long time. 
We live in a post-enlightenment culture, but it doesn't mean that the enlightenment prevails. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, the scripture that Paul is talking about here doesn't even include our New Testament yet. In fact, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, a place that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in Luke's travel plans. Timothy doesn't possess the New Testament yet. And so Paul says, even what you hold in your hands, Timothy, even the, the scrolls of the books of Moses and the wisdom literature and the Psalms and the prophets, these are God-breathed. They come from your creator. And they are useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, that is a bold claim. The words of God inspired to people, to men, are his words, his message to us, communicating his thoughts and our story. That's the word of God. And you may say, well, then how do we actually get these words? And Another great verse to lean into are the words of 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us this about the words of God. And again, referencing only our Old Testament at this point, because obviously we're reading his words now. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. It didn't start with humans, but prophets, though they were human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The message that we read and that we hold now in our own language came to us because God inspired it into the hearts, the pens, and the quills, and the mouths of other humans. You may say, well, how did I get the Bible that I hold in my hands? Like, how does this, like, how does this flesh itself out? What does this really look like to hold the Bible physically? Or maybe it's a digital copy you're reading on a tablet or a phone. Uh, there's a really simple process we talk about. It's called inspiration, transmission, and translation. So inspiration speaks to the dual authorship of God, uh, of the Bible. That It was from God. He's the ultimate author, but it was written by human beings. It's inspired by him. That's what we just saw in 2 Timothy and what we just read in, in 2 Peter. And then that, those words, which were given over the course of multiple centuries and a couple thousand years, were transmitted, transmission. They were, they were given, and then those words were treasured, and then so someone would copy them down word for word, and they would be copied again. Again, this is before the day and age of copy machines. It's before the day and age of, of terabyte hard drives and, and servers that could store information, and so they were copied by hand year after year, decade after decade, century after century. We actually have a whole science dedicated to looking at these manuscripts that have been found all over the ancient Near East, um, from archaeological finds. It's called textual criticism. There are people who study all these manuscripts, and what they find is that it is incredible and remarkable how so many different copies of our biblical text, after uh, literally like hundreds of years of people copying them, have so much in common and so few mistakes. And then those documents are then translated from one language beginning in the source language, Hebrew or Greek, into 
the language that we read them in today. So you get your English Bible because God inspired it, and I'm dropping things, and because God inspired it, because it was transmitted over decades and centuries, and then translated where people said, okay, we're gonna take the meaning we see in the original language, and we're gonna translate that meaning into the receiving language. In our case, English. If you live in Russia, Russian. If you live in China, Chinese. So that people can continue to read and glean from the word of God. That's remarkable. Do you know that by the mid-third century B.C., uh, we're talking 250, 260 B.C., remember B.C. counts down, that there was already widespread consensus on the 39 books of the Old Testament. When a group of 70 Jewish scholars got together to translate the Hebrew manuscripts into Greek, the Greek Septuagint, they already had agreement on these are the 39 authoritative words of God. Do you know that by the end of the second century AD, and again, AD counts up, we're in 2021, right? By the end of the second century, okay, we're talking just 150 years post Jesus living on this earth, that there's already agreement on the 27 books of the New Testament. We know that because the early church fathers referenced them. We know that because there's a group of teachings called the apostolic fathers. These are people that actually walked with the disciples who wrote about it, and they only call attention to these 27 books of the New Testament. So by the end of the second century AD, people say these are the 66 books that we should follow and obey, and these are the message of God. And that has guided God's people, the church, for the last, what, 1,800 plus years? Is that not incredible? The word of God, living and active. And so what we wanna do is if God's word comes from him and he was so meticulous in getting it to us, how do we discipline ourselves to glean from his truth, if it's to guide us and invite us into our, his story and let us know our place in that story. How do, we, how do we study it? And so there are basically three disciplines that we talk about a lot related to the word of God, and, and they are study, meditation, and memorization. Study, meditation, and memorization. Studying God's word refers to that discipline where uh, we intentionally go to it to learn from it, for it to teach us about who we are, about who God is, about what he says, about how to live and the choices we should make. We, we intentionally study it to learn from it that it might shape our lives, that we might submit to its teachings and its truth and what it declares. There's meditation, and that's where we take a smaller portion, whether that's a word or a phrase from scripture, or maybe even a verse, and we intentionally reflect upon it and ask God, how should I live this out? What do you want to convict in me because of it? How do you want to encourage me? And we just kind of rest and turn that verse over. It's far different from the Eastern mystical meditation that's about clearing your mind and freeing your mind and centering yourself. Biblical meditation is about intentionally focusing and reflecting on specific words of God that they might get into us. In fact, when the psalmist, Psalm 119, is one of the most powerful passages of scripture that speaks about the wonders and the might and the beauty of God's word, he talks about meditating on God's word in Psalm 119. That word that he uses for meditate, it's also used to speak of a cow chewing its cud. I'm, I'm not a big cow person. I've never owned a cow. Um, I, but, but here's what I know about cows is when cows eat, especially grain that's harder to break down, they chew it and they get it as, as, as wet as they can on their saliva. They swallow it and it goes into a stomach and then rumen is in their stomach and it begins to break down what they're eating. And then as it breaks it down, the fermentation process is taking place. They then 
push back up or regurgitate some of that food into their mouth and they chew it and that's chewing their cud. And what are they doing? They're breaking it down more. It goes into their stomach and it ruminates. We use that word ruminate to speak of breaking down something even in human conversation and thinking. And so the word meditate in scripture means that we will take some of his word in and we will chew on it. And so say you take a phrase that Jesus utters like, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you. And you would just think on it and you would chew on it. And you throughout a day would say, God, how do I love my enemies? God, who are my enemies? God, how do I pray for those that are hurting me? God, help me pray for those that are hurting me. As you reflect and you think and you ruminate, it, it gets into you and the nutrients infuse you just like they would infuse the cow that's chewing its cud. And so meditation is a discipline that's helpful to us as followers of Jesus. Because there are some hard words, aren't there? If you've read the Bible for any length of time in your life, you probably find that there are hard words. So as we meditate, we ask God to teach us, to encourage us, to convict us, to change us. And another common discipline is memorization. Here's all the psalmist in Psalm 119 says. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have, I've committed your words deep inside me. We memorize because we know there might come a time when I don't have my Bible on me, although it's harder to do now that it's on our phones and you can Google verses and things like that. But we memorize because there's times of crisis when those words come back to us. There's a passage that I memorized from Psalm 121. It begins, I lift my eyes to the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And I cannot tell you how many times those words have come back to me in moments of crisis, moments of hardship, moments when I don't understand. But I can speak the very words of God out loud because they've been committed into my mind and my heart and they guide me and they help me and they remind me what's true when, when so many things around me are trying to pull me away or cause doubt. So we memorize so these are disciplines that we are all centered on the word of God because it's so much more than words. Yes, our Bibles are collections of letters and sounds and, and as etymologists would say, they're collections of morphemes, these parts of speech that connote meaning and thought. But there's so much more than words. They're the message of God, our creator, to us, his people. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at these various disciplines again and again and again. We're not gonna spend one week focusing on each one. Instead, we're gonna frame our messages around these powerful images that God uses to speak of his word. We're gonna begin with this image of light. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 105 says this. He says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Your words... And the psalmist here only had the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Your words are a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Uh, the lamp that the psalmist would have referred to is a small clay lamp with a wick that went into the oil and it would have been so dim compared to our lights today. Uh, I had to ask our boys to loan me a flashlight and I won't shine it at you because our LED lights are bright. Uh, in fact, they both bought lights yesterday at a store that are so bright that like for probably 15 minutes after looking at them, which I know is not the smart thing to do, I was still seeing them in my, my eyes. But our, our lights are so bright and they, they, they shine the way. 
When you go camping, you take a light. When, when you're on a Boy Scout trip, you, you take a light. When, when you're out in the dark, maybe on a walk in the woods, you take a light. Why? Because that light reveals not only where you are, but where you're headed. It reveals dangers and hazards. It reveals the right path. It shows you how to go. And the psalmist says that's what God's word is. It's a lamp for our feet. It's a light for our path. It keeps us from stumbling. It keeps us from going the wrong way. In the beginning of October, I was serving with our mission partner in, in Austria, TCM. And, and, and TCM, if you've, a few of you have been with me on a mission trip there, but one of the things that we really like to do in the evenings once all the work's done, about 7.30 at night, is we go for a long walk in the woods on a, a paved path down to a monastery. And uh, we'll, we'll sit in a restaurant there and we'll have some dessert as we rest from the day. And TCM always says, take a flashlight with you. Why is that? It's a paved trail, but it's so dark. And, and if you walk that trail, you actually find that there are paths that go off in different directions. And you need the light to keep you on the right path to know where to go. Um, that monastery has several monks that live there, and those monks often will walk those trails early in the morning or late at night when it's dark. And very seldom do they bring flashlights. They just like to see by the light of the moon. It's an awful, awkward encounter when you're walking down one of those trails and a monk in full cloak runs into you. A flashlight's a good thing to have. Something else that that area is known for in the Vienna woods are large slugs. I, I am talking like huge slugs and salamanders. And you want to go walking at night without a flashlight and you step on one of those, you, you're, you think you're in a horror film. The light shines the way and it reveals the psalmist says, the word of God is a lamp for my feet. It's a light for my path. It reveals. It reveals what's right. It reveals what's wrong. It reveals what's true. In our day and age, when there's such an assault on truth, we need the light of God's word to reveal what's right, what's wrong, What's true? But you know what the word of God reveals more than anything else? It reveals Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. No matter how much you study, no matter how much you discover in God's word, if we miss, if you miss Jesus, you miss the point. No matter how much we discover in God's word, if we miss Jesus, we miss the point. Jesus actually addresses this in John chapter five. Uh, John, his disciple, records uh, this encounter early in the ministry of Jesus. It's found in, in chapter five. And uh, while we're gonna focus on verses 39 and 40, I think it's important to set the stage uh, before we get there. So Jesus is in Jerusalem as we get to this part of John, uh, verse 16. He's in Jerusalem. He's just healed a paralytic, a guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He finds this guy who's not been able to walk for 38 years, maybe his whole life, if not a very large portion of his life. And he heals him. He walks again. But Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. And these religious leaders among the Jews had developed this philosophy that 
that was work and you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. And so the, 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 these religious leaders are infuriated by Jesus' actions. So John tells us as he recalls this and recounts this later in his life and he's writing this gospel that it's at this point that the religious leaders resolve to not only persecute Jesus but to, to kill him. And so Jesus knows this and so Jesus actually begins to put together a literal case for his authority for these religious leaders. So in verses 16 through 30, Jesus talks about his authority, the authority that he has, and the reasons why people should trust him and his authority. But he says in verse 31, now I know, I know, I know, that's not enough for you. See, Jesus knows the word of God inside and out. He knows that Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, the law of Moses said that if you're going to settle a dispute, it requires two or three witnesses. Jesus himself would speak about the importance of witnesses in Matthew chapter 18 when it comes to conflict. It's where those famous words are, where two or three are gathered. There I am with you. That's not in the context of, hey, we can have a great worship service because we have two or three of us here. No, it's in the context of confrontation and conflict when two or three witnesses come together and they, they share the same viewpoint. We know that God is honored in the midst of that. Paul talks about the importance of two or three witnesses. So Jesus being a great Jew, he's like, okay, my testimony is not enough for you. I get it. Let me summon before you four more witnesses. I'm not gonna give you two. I'm not gonna give you three. I'm gonna give you four. And so beginning in verse 32, he says, witness number one is John the Baptist. He came proclaiming about me. But you didn't believe him. Witness number two my works, not my work, my works, my miracles, the things I've done. By this point in Jesus' life, he's already changed water to wine in Galilee. He's already raised a, a, a woman's son back to life. He's just healed a paralytic on the Sabbath day. He says, my works witness to my authority. But even if those two witnesses aren't enough, my testimony's not enough, John's not enough, my works aren't enough, my father has witnessed about me. Now, I don't know what Jesus is speaking of here, I'm guessing it may have to do with his baptism. Do you remember what happened in the baptism? Uh, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. He comes up out of the water and God declares from heaven, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. The witness of the father. Let me get some water. <coughs> So we have the witness of the Father. And then Jesus says, we don't just have these three witnesses in addition to mine. We have a fourth. It's the witness of my word. Look at verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, it's not just John. It's not just my works. It's not just my father. But the scriptures that you study, that you search thoroughly, they actually point to me. Why, why would the Pharisees, why, why would the religious leaders have come to the word of God for life? It's because again and again, when God spoke to Moses and gave the commands to them, he would say, do this and you will live. But what they missed was the life came not through the obedience itself, but because of the life that it pointed to and the one that provided that life, which ultimately pointed to Jesus. 
Jesus says, these scriptures reveal me. I'm the source of life. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Your word reveals, God's word reveals Jesus. So we want to study it. We should want to meditate on it. We should want to memorize it because it shows us the one through whom our life, in whom our life is found and through whom we have life, eternal life, overflowing and full. We, we could spend a lot of time beating up on the religious leaders for missing Jesus, <clears throat> but we might be better served just by looking in the mirror. One of the things that I have seen as a disciple of Jesus living in the United States of America we have an abundance of Bibles. Quite honestly, many of us have multiple Bibles on our shelves at home or in our office. We have abundance of Bible translations. We have abundance of Bible studies. You can just peruse Amazon at some point in time. I'm not saying they're all good, but there's plenty of them. We have a whole discount store dedicated to resources, christianbook.com. And yet one of the things I've seen is that oftentimes men and women who identify as disciples of Jesus have such a quest and hunger to know more, but not so much to show more transformation in their lives. Our diligence in study must be outpaced by our desire to submit to and obey and to live according to the scriptures. Do we come to the scriptures thinking that just through study, just through knowing more, just because I know more about the arguments in Romans, or just, be know, just because I know more about the 12 disciples, just because I know more about the women in the Bible, just because I know more about who Joshua was, that, that somehow I have life, or do we come to it so it reveals Jesus to us? Because Jesus always transforms. Jesus always changes. If the word of God is to be a light, a lamp for my feet and a light for my path, I have to come to it and say, God, show me. Show me what's true. Show me what's right. Show me what's wrong. Show me Jesus and help me obey and help me conform and help me follow. And I do that as I study his word. Well, let me just ask you this. How often do you read his word? How often do you listen to his word? How often do you study his word? For all the Bibles and all the Bible studies and all the translations, survey after survey is showing that followers of Jesus less and less actually open up the pages of Scripture and read them. Yet these are the words that lead us to the one who brings life. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from reading? What's stopping you from listening to? What's stopping you from, uh, from meditating on? What's stopping you from memorizing it? One of the most common things that I hear from people is that um, it's just so hard to understand. And, and, and I'll give that to you. There are parts of God's word that are hard to understand. Uh, the reality is that there's a, a bit of a distance between us and when these words were originally inspired. Different historical time, a different language, different culture. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from it. And when has being unfamiliar with times and places and terms ever stopped you from learning about something else? 
one of the people I hear it from the most is, is men. And so I, I'm a guy, so I feel comfortable I can pick on guys for just a moment, and I'm not here to beat you up. But I hear from guys that say they just can't read God's word. They don't understand it. Well, did, did you understand everything about guns before you started reading the Guns and Ammo magazine and before you started familiarizing yourself with calibers and, 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 and pistols and, hand, and, and rifles and no, probably not. Did you understand everything about uh, what you do with your other hobbies? No, you, over time, you became more familiar with terminology. You became to understand it. And, and slowly it transformed how you live and the things that you do. Uh, let, me, let me pick on gamers for a minute. Did, did you always understand what a KD ratio was? A kills to, to death ratio, Right? Did you always understand what skins were? No, and then Fortnite came along and you learned that you can put on these different outfits that don't change how you play very well, but they, but they, they change how you look. Did you, did, you, did you always know what flossing was? No, but then you, you learned about that. Did you, did you know what V-Bucks were? Did you, did you know what, if you're in computers, did you know what RAM and gigs and megs and bus speed and all that stuff was? No. If you're a teacher, did you always know what rubrics were and what scope and sequence was and what IEPs were? No. If you're in business, did you always understand what KPIs were, key performance indicators, what SMART goals were? No. But what happened over time, you read and you discovered and you learned and you began to assimilate that into your life and it just grew. And the same thing happens with God's word. As you begin to read it, there are things that are unfamiliar but you just keep reading and God just keeps leading and you keep discovering. But here's what the word of God has over any guns and ammo magazine, over any gaming magazine, is that God through his spirit continues to teach us even when we don't understand. There's story after story of men and women, young and old, who open up God's word, who know nothing about it and they read it and God grabs hold of their heart and he changes them and he renews them and he rescues them. And so for all those reasons, my sincere prayers as a disciple of Jesus, you will study his word, that you will choose to meditate on parts of his word, that you will commit his word to memory because it will shape you and it will change you and it will help us be the people that God designed us to be. Listen, it feels like our world is getting darker. We need the light, and his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I just, I thank you for the beauty and the mystery of your word. And God, I pray that it would be a light for us. I pray, Father, that any conviction that's in this room or in the people that are watching from home, it would, it would lead to action. That there would be a desire to get a, a Bible to read, a study Bible with some footnotes to learn from. There would be a desire to, to, to delay hold of a few words and meditate on them. There would be a desire to commit it to memory because we know that your words point us to the word of life, Jesus, who rescues and saves and redeems. God, give us a hunger and a thirst and a dependence on your word. And it's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen.